Here is the answer to the antagonism and the malevolence that we will experience in our time here below. Here it is. He says, but there's a helper coming. I'm going to send you from the Father a helper. You're listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pilgrim Benham. I'm the lead pastor of Shoreline Church. And today we have a very important message from John chapter 15 on the world, the opposition that we as Christians will face in this world. So open your Bibles and enjoy this message. I'm going to start this morning with a quote on the screen. And... There's some controversy with this quote, but the quote says, the world's smiles are more dangerous than its frowns. Now, I agree with that quote. See, on the one hand, we as followers of Jesus have been born into this world. We've been born into the world, uh, which makes us literally earthlings. But in another sense, we've been called out of this world and aliens. And so... uh, We then live thus in what D.A. Carson uh, calls a society of rebels. Not that we're the rebels, but we're living in a society where the society around us is the rebellious. He says that the, the world we live in is the created moral order in which is an active rebellion against God. So according to D.A. Carson, uh, we are former rebels who have, by the grace of our king, Uh, been won back to loving allegiance to our rightful monarch. And and thus, we find ourselves with this newly founded status as alien. Uh, That makes us kind of pariahs in a world of rebels. You know what a pariah is? A pariah, an alien, these are are outsiders. The world does not like the alien, the outcast, the person who's different. People who are different, according to the world, are, are weird. They're strange. They're odd. And we alienate ourselves from them, and we alienate them. Uh, I was reading a story about um, this situation that happened almost two centuries ago. There was an Englishman named Jonas Hanway, and he was on a business trip in Persia, and he observed the women there were using these um, parasols from China. And they were using them, and they were making them larger in Persia. And he had this sudden idea. What if I brought back a Persian parasol and used different material and made it larger and used it as a man against the English rain? Because it rained all the time. And so Jonas Hanway was the first inventor of the umbrella. And so as he's walking the streets of England, of London, he was thinking, like, this is the great thing. This is wonderful. Well, what he didn't realize is the people saw that and they thought no man should ever wear what they called, they, they, um, they called it a uh, personal roof on a stick. And so they said, that's effeminate. If you are a man, you don't wear a personal roof on a stick. And so they began to mock him. They would throw vegetables. They would throw garbage at him. But in England, you call it rubbish. And so they would throw rubbish at him. On one occasion, people would, would chase him And on another occasion, true story, a a, a coach, one of those um, uh, horse-drawn coaches, the coach driver tried to run him over with his carriage. Well, uh, not to be moved, Hanway actually took his umbrella and, quote, according to the quote, um, gave the man a good thrashing, all right? Nothing effeminate about beating someone up with an umbrella. Anyway, uh, 
the world, that's just a silly example, the world doesn't like that. I don't like someone who's different. There's a guy wearing an umbrella. We don't do that here. Right? The world doesn't like pariahs, outcasts, aliens. Uh, in fact, in a word, they hate them. And so as we open up John chapter 15, the second half, we realize uh, that Jesus is making a huge contrast. Look at uh, verse 17. And Pastor Micah last week did a phenomenal job. If you missed the sermon, go back and listen to it. I had a chance to listen to it. Uh, at the end of that sermon, he made a great plea for us to be abiding in the vine and to be um, friends with one another, to build our friendship and our fellowship around Jesus here in this community. Um, but notice with me, if you don't have it on the screen, verse 17, Jesus said, these things I command you, the church, so that you will love one another. There's this love within this community. But then we have a contrast between that verse and verse 18. You see, we have the love of the saints who've been grafted into the vine, Jesus, and we're bearing fruit as we love and as we serve and care for one another. But in verse 18, Jesus speaks not about this loving church community that we have here, but he speaks about another community. And there's another community outside of this wonderful, glorious fellowship. There's an outside community that does not have love for this community. But it's pretty extreme, but he says that it's a community that has rejection for us and even hatred. And so we're gonna be studying this important passage this morning and seeing an honest warning about what you and I can expect in the world that we live in. This may not be the happiest sermon that you've ever heard, uh, but it's gonna be one that equips you. And my job is not to entertain or to make you feel better about yourself, it's to equip you for the work of ministry. So this is gonna be kind of a downer today in a good way, all right? This is one of those weird ones where you're gonna leave encouraged as you're wrecked. I don't know why that happens when we, when we exposit scripture, but it goes there. So I don't think we rightly prepare people like, think about this. We sometimes say to newlyweds, people who are about to get married, we're like, oh, you're just two kids in love. You're gonna, no problems, just your romance and your love for each other is gonna carry you. <laughs> we, <laughs> those of you who are laughing are married, right? Because we know what they're getting in for. What we should say is, yeah, you're about to have a long, slow, and painful death, right? That's what you're, that's what you're getting into. Like, like, honestly, like, is there anywhere that I can sign up where I can just slowly, over a long period of time, die. Yes, christianmingle.com. That's where you can have that. You can experience that. We tell people who want to sign up for the military. We go, oh, man, it's wonderful to protect the country. That's awesome. And, and you're going to get free education and veterans assistance. And, and, man, who doesn't like wearing camo? I mean, camo's in right now. So go for it. We don't tell them, hey, wait a minute, they're going to shave your head, you're going to be up at 2 a.m. running randomly, you're going to be owned by the U.S. government, and you could lay down your life for your country. It's a noble thing, but we sometimes don't prepare people. Likewise, I've heard people try to present the gospel, and it's almost cringy the way that they share the gospel presentation. Uh, I don't know if you've heard these where people say, you know, just come to Jesus. He wants to make your life better. And, and glorious and receive Jesus today and he'll shower blessing upon blessing in your life. And God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I do that too well, I think. Um, I would say, oh yeah, if he has a wonderful plan for my life, if by wonderful plan 
You mean that when I go to share the gospel, I'm willing to do that no matter what it costs me, even if I lose life, limb, or loved one, I'm going to have an inheritance in heaven, then yeah, I guess that's a wonderful plan and I agree with you. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't set up his disciples here for us by proxy for failure. Uh, he doesn't offer them that sort of false prosperity gospel where all your wildest dreams will come true. He offers them here a strong dose of reality and perspective. And here in our text this morning, we're going to see the extent of hostility. I'm not here to sermonize this. This is the extent of hostility that you and I can expect in this world. So it should not come as a surprise one day. And we're all going to face this if we decide to pursue and proclaim Jesus. Now, here's how we're going to break this section of Scripture down. We just read it, but here's how we're going to do it. Four different ideas. This came from someone else. This is a commentator, so I borrowed it, and now it's mine. Uh, the description, first of all, of the world's hatred, verses 18 and 20. We're going to see the world's hatred described. You can take a photo of this if you want or jot it down. Secondly, the reason for the world's hatred. We'll see why the world hates us, and it's not just because of our dress. Okay? Uh, thirdly, the answer to the world's hatred. What is our response? How should we then live? We'll see our answer to the world's hatred. And finally, Jesus leaves us with a warning so that we don't leave uh, mistaken. So with that as our outline, there's a lot of hate in this message today, but it's not from the pulpit and it's not from me. We're going to see there's hate that exists outside of the four walls of the church. Let's look at the first idea, the description of the world's hatred. Look back at verse 18 with me. Jesus says, if the world hates you you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Did you see with me? I emphasized it a little bit. There are four ifs in this section of Scripture. Uh, we're going to see this word if used in what Greek scholars call the first class conditional uh, way. When I'm on a flight, there's the first class and then there's the rest of us. You walk past the first class guys and kind of go, well, that must be nice. The last time I checked, though, the people in the front of the plane arrive at the same time that the people in the back of the plane arrive. So I'm not paying extra for that little bit of legroom. I'll just try to find the exit seat. But uh, first class, no matter what, is set apart. So a first class conditional if is a different if than what we're used to. Okay, so just for a minute, a lot of people say the first class conditional means you could put the word since in. And that's true 37% of the time in the Greek. But it's not always that simple. So when we hear a first-class conditional if, here's the way we would say it. We would say, if, and let's assume for the sake of the argument that it's true, then. Okay, you guys with me? Let me just do this as an example. Here's a first-class conditional statement. Uh, you could say it this way. If my wife loves me, and let's assume for the sake of the argument she does, then she would buy me Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> Someone said, is there going to be a donut reference today? I'm like, absolutely, there will be, for sure. Uh, if this, and let's assume it's true for the sake of the argument, then this. So here's how we would read these real quick on the screen. Jesus is saying, if the world hates you, and let's assume for the sake of the argument that the world hates you, well, then you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, and let's just assume you are, then the world would love you. If they persecuted me, and we kind of know they did, well, they'll persecute you also. If they kept my word, and let's just argue that they did, then they will keep yours also. 
You see, Jesus is saying here to us that the world would not hate us if we were really of the world. But because we're followers of Jesus, then listen, we will experience the same rejection from the world that Jesus faced. So he tells us a servant is not greater than his or her master. And the world loves its own, but it dislikes or it suspects or it even condemns anyone who's not uh, embodying the same rebellious standard of worldliness. So anybody that seems otherworldly is going to seem strange and we're going to reject, persecute, uh, and, and even hate, much like the man walking the streets of London with the umbrella. So the logical idea here is that if you want to be liked and you want to be accepted and you want everyone to be your friend and be embraced by the world, it's very easy. All you have to do is just be more worldly. Now, please highlight, circle the word world that's listed here. Um, you'll find it listed six times in verses 18 through 20, so you have some work to do. Circle the word world. Then if you were to interject world where Jesus says they from verses 21 to 16, 3, we would find that he says world six times and they 14 times. So 20 times in this short, short section of scripture that we just read, Jesus is saying, this is the world, this is you. This, this really is an us-them mentality. The scriptures do say a lot about the world. And listen, church, the world is not referring to the third rock from the sun. He's not saying that planet Earth, the cosmos, has this issue. No, he's talking about the world's system. Uh, the people in this world that ascribe to the pattern, to the mold, to the cookie-cutter-shaped uh, philosophy or mantra or idol that the world embraces and worships, and yet we know it's false worship, it's vain worship. The scriptures say a lot, and just on the screen real quick, here's a few different things. We're told by Jesus later in this chapter that we are born into the world, but we learn in Galatians 1 that we've been delivered from the world. We also learn in Galatians that we have been crucified to the world, that we're not of the world, that we are hated by the world. And then James even takes it as far as saying that friendship with the world, meaning fully embracing all of the world, well, that's enmity, that's being an enemy uh, with God. Jesus says here, I chose you out of the world, and that's why they hate you. They're going to persecute you if they persecuted me. And, and we don't really understand. We hear that word persecution, and we kind of go, yeah, that's bad. I'm sure someone's experiencing that. But we don't really grasp that because we're not experiencing it much here in America to the level that the other parts of the world are. Uh, many of us don't realize that Christianity is the most persecuted religion on the planet. Uh, it is illegal or severely restricted as of today in 51 different countries. Uh, that number is increasing. Uh, the Voice of the Martyrs has some sobering stats, but they tell us that, uh, I don't have them on the screen, but more than 43 million Christians have died, uh, killed for their faith since the crucifixion of Jesus. 43 million. Uh, they estimate that more Christians have been martyred in this century, the 20th century, uh, this last century than all of the 19th centuries put together. So it's not like this was just something you read in Fox's Book of Martyrs for the first century. This is something that has increased even now. Uh, more than 26 million documented cases of martyrdom in this century alone, 26 million. In fact, they find that today, more than 200 million Christians in 60 nations face persecution daily, and 60% of that number are children. In fact, 150 to 165,000 of our brothers and sisters every year 
are martyred for their faith every year uh, in this world. And that's something we don't experience at, at the level that the church does. But there's not a persecuted church and then a non-persecuted church. It's the church. We're all the church. We're all, this is our bride, the bride of Christ that's being martyred, that's being persecuted. But we could ask, why? Why is this happening? Why is the world so hostile against Christianity? Is it the way we dress? Is it the way we talk? Well, there's something deeper happening. And that brings us to our second idea, the reason. Look at verse 21. The reason for the world's hatred is given to us right here. Jesus says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Why? Because they do not know him who sent me. Why do the people in the world treat us this way? Because they're ignorant of Jesus and they're ignorant of the Father. Uh, Verse 22, Jesus goes on and says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Now, stay with me. Jesus is not saying that if he didn't come, people would never have sin. He's being very specific when he says sin. What he's saying here uh, is that they rejected him as Messiah. They committed that sin of rejecting him. He said, I came as the light of the world, and the people rejected the way, the truth, and the life. And so because of that, they're guilty of rejecting Messiah. And if I didn't come, they never would have been guilty of that. Uh, So then he goes on in verse 23, and he says, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did. I'm sorry, verse 23. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, the sin of rejecting their Messiah. But now they've seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Jesus says here in verse 23 that to reject him is to reject the Father. So you're not able to give, get the out where you say, oh, I don't pray in Jesus' name, I just... Uh, I pray, you know, in the name of God. No, to reject Jesus is to reject the Father. To hate Jesus is to hate the Father because they are one. But here, Jesus goes on to quote Psalm 69.4 and to point out that even King David prophesied in advance that the Messiah uh, would be hated and rejected. And so what he's saying is these same people that look to David, that look to the Scriptures, don't even notice that even in the scriptures, he's speaking about the fact that they will reject their own Messiah. They're the ones guilty of this very sin. Now, it wasn't simply that the church was just annoying to the Jews, annoying to the Romans, and so that's why they were hated. Listen, the world had animosity with the early church in large part because of five misconceptions about them. And all of these have to do with the personal work of Christ. All of these have to do with Jesus. He says, on account of me, that's why they hate you. So real quick, I don't have them on the screen. Jot these down. These are really interesting. I didn't know these. I knew a little bit about these, but studied these this week, and I found these out kind of interesting. Five misconceptions that the world had about Christians. Number one, they believed that Christians, the Romans believed that we were bad citizens. Bad citizens. There was a kind of a trademark phrase that you would say when you walked up to another Roman citizen. You'd come up and you'd say, Caesar is Lord. And you'd respond back with, Caesar is Lord. Well, the Christians adopted that and they said, yeah, we're going to throw Caesar out like bad potatoes. We're going to replace that with Jesus because Jesus really is Lord. And so they'd come up to you, Romans, hey, Caesar is Lord. And (laughs) well, um, I've pledged my allegiance to someone else. So Jesus is Lord. And so they realized, wait, these guys... They, they're unraveling the system of government and worship that is built into the Roman Empire. So they looked at us, they looked at the church as bad citizens. These people are disloyal. They're dangerous citizens. They're political 
and bringing up an uprising. Secondly, the early Roman Empire looked at the church and thought that we were against the family. They heard about this Jesus who said that he would divide brother and sister, mother and father. And so their idea, hearing that was, and then they saw it, seeing Christians become born again, and, and maybe not in the case of Carol's testimony where the whole family then goes to church, where they actually would split uh, and no longer be a part of the family. And the Roman Empire and the Jews saw that and said, well, this person is bringing a sword. He's cutting through families. And so, man, these Christians must be against the, the ba- basic building block of society, the family. They're against. They heard about these love feasts, the gathering of the church around the personal work of Christ. And, and they said, what is this love feast that they're going to? That sounds weird. And, and they're going and they're, they're, we hear that they greet each other with a holy kiss. That sounds odd. And so their whole idea was that, that Christians were promiscuous. They actually believed that these love feasts meant something really weird. And, and that Christians in their gatherings were coming together and doing this lewd kind of thing. And for Rome to think that the, that the church was being lewd, okay, this was crazy, all right? So not only that, but number four, the, the early um, Roman Empire looked at the church and said, these people are doomsday disciples, Look at how they're walking on the street corner talking about the end of the world and that their founder is coming back. That this religion has this leader and he's going to come back and take over the world or end the world. And so these people are crazy. And it's all around this person, Jesus, that they worship. Well, the last reason that the world was in, had animosity is actually really, really crazy. They believe that Christians were cannibals. They believe we were cannibals. That the early church in their communion service, we're eating bodies and drinking blood because that's what we do at communion, right? We celebrate the body and the blood of Christ. And so they actually believe that Christians were cannibals. So here are promiscuous, cannibalistic, family-ending, doomsday-crazed people who are against the government, right? Hey, welcome. Welcome to our city. (laughs) There was an absolute misunderstanding. And today, we who are identified with Christ should expect the world to reject and hate us as well. They may not think that we're cannibalistic, promiscuous people, but we are going to be misunderstood. Christians are always marginalized on any of the sitcoms, on any television show. We're caricatured and ostracized. And and if we're not being rejected or demonized, even now, today, in our circle of friends and the people around us, chances are we may not be living our faith boldly enough. D.A. Carson said it this way, The world demonstrates their forbearance and large-hearted goodness when they confront diverse opinions, varied lifestyles, and even idiotic practices. But if some Christian claims that Christianity is exclusive, as Jesus insisted, or that moral absolutes exist because they're grounded in the character of God as the Bible teaches, or that there's a hell to be shunned as well as a heaven to be gained, the most intemperate language is used to excoriate the poor fool. He says, the world hates. And the reason that the world hates us is because they hate Jesus and they're ignorant of the Father. That's why. It's not because of our actions, our attitude. It's because we represent the Savior. We represent the Master. So what's the answer to this hatred? Uh, Look at verse 26. Let's look at this third idea, the answer to the world's hatred. Jesus says, but when the Helper comes whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness uh, because you have been with me from the beginning. 
Note the contrast in verse 26, guys, with the word but. Okay? Here is the answer to the antagonism and the malevolence that we will experience in our time here below. Here it is. He says, but there's a helper coming. I'm going to send you from the Father a helper. Now, notice with me the similarities of these verses with John chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, flip back, or if you have your app, flip back to John chapter 14. We studied this a few weeks ago. Look at verses 16 and 17. Look how similar these verses are. Jesus says in verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, a parakletos, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Skip down to verses 26 and 27. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see, one of the most important aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit is that he is the spirit of truth. And church, truth is always communicated. The idea here in chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, is that there's a communication of truth. There's a bearing of witness. There's a testimony or a declaration of truth. The, the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus, and we bear witness because the Spirit is at work in and through our lives. I think that it's important uh, to know that whenever the Holy Spirit wants to communicate and declare the work of Jesus, the glory of God, he does it through the followers of Jesus. I mean, it'd be cool if the Holy Spirit could just kind of draw the gospel in the clouds, and yes, the heavens declare the glory of God, but I mean literally. I mean, that'd be kind of cool. That happened in Orlando a few months ago. Our family was there, and we looked up, and I guess a guy in a plane had, had written out God loves you, or John 3.16 with the, with the, with the uh, contrails. And so people believe there's a conspiracy with contrails. There was on that day. There's a guy with a conspiracy of getting the gospel out, or at least uh, a verse out, um, in the clouds. And so, man, wouldn't it be cool if the Holy Spirit could just maybe write the gospel uh, in the cloud, and, and that would just be awesome. But see, the Holy Spirit works through, testifies of Jesus through human lives and lips. He uses us to declare um, the gospel. And so... What we have to realize, though, is what is at stake. Uh, Jesus, in John chapter 16, as we switch gears into this new chapter, um, shares a warning to his followers about what they can expect. And prior to this, the 12 disciples and most of his followers weren't really getting the agenda. They didn't understand why Jesus was even there in the first place. They didn't understand his mission and his ministry. They were expecting him to set up his rule and reign and for his kingdom to be a militant, political kingdom that overthrew Rome. And so remember when Jesus marched into Jerusalem riding the foal of the donkey and they laid their cloaks down, they laid down palm branches, yell it out for me, what were they singing out as Jesus approached? They were singing out Hosanna. Hosanna means save. Save us now. You may as well insert, instead of Hosanna, you may as well insert revolution. Overthrow the tyranny of Caesar and Come now and set up the, the, the throne of David. Restore it today. That, that would have been uh, just as easily, but it's a lot shorter to say Hosanna. And so they just said, Hosanna, save us now. Get rid of the rule and reign of Caesar. Uh, Judas, one of the disciples, realized this wasn't going to happen. 
And so he's kind of a first adopter. He's like, this isn't going to happen. And so he goes and he sells Jesus out uh, and betrays Jesus to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Uh, soon after we're, the section we're reading right now, soon after this, the remaining 11 disciples are going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. The temple guard's going to come with Judas to arrest Jesus. And we see the disciples scrambling. We see Peter drawing his sword. Why, did, why would he do that? He's going to draw his sword. Why? To fight. We're here to fight. And, and Jesus says, listen, we're, we're, you know, put away the sword. We're not here to fight. They weren't expecting the kingdom of God to culminate in the crucifixion. And because they had the wrong expectations, um, they end up fleeing, they end up running, they fall, they fail. And so even though that happens, Jesus does his best to warn them what to expect. And they weren't really paying attention, but notice verse 1. This is the fourth idea here, a warning against the world's hatred. And this is for us. He says in verse 1, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Uh, in the Greek, the word falling away has with it an idea of falling into a trap by surprise. I don't know if you fall into a trap without being surprised. That's rare, but it means to fall into a trap and be stunned and surprised. The implication is that if Jesus told us it's all sunshine and puppies, well, in the first moment there's, there's a cloud, we're going to depart. We're going to leave. Because like falling into a pit, we didn't expect it. Well, here's what we can expect. Look at verse 2. This is what we can expect. He says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's an offering service to God. Now, these seem like kind of two extremes. Like, hey, they're going to kill you, and then they're not going to let you go to church. <laughs> it seems like two different ideas here. I mean, that sounds really bad, and that's not as bad. Well, listen, to put someone out of the Jewish synagogue uh, would have been devastating to a family. Uh, your entire social network possibly even your livelihood, depended upon your um, connection to the people in your community. And, and if the synagogue cut you off, that could cut off everything. And so Jesus says, even to the degree these people are going to purport to worship God and think that, that you don't belong there, that you're worshiping a different God. So they're going to cut you off, and then they're going to say, in fact, God, to more honor you, we're going to put them to death. He says they're going to go to that extreme, to think that they're doing service to God by killing you. Verse 3, and they'll do these things, why? Because they've not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Church, the root problem in the world's disgust and hatred for us is a failure simply to recognize the deity of Christ. If the world recognized that Jesus was Lord, then they'd rightly call him master and they would repent and they would trust their lives to his lordship. If they saw him as Christ, as Lord, they'd willingly, gladly surrender their lives and comfort and pleasure and demolish their idols and serve the one true God. But to not recognize Jesus as Lord, to not see him as Messiah, to not understand who the Father is because the Father wasn't drawing them, means they'll reject those who will represent him. Stephen Cole says it this way, their task and ours is to go to a self-seeking, pleasure-oriented world and proclaim that the holy God is going to judge all sinners, but that he has provided the way of escape through the Savior. This message is sure to stir up derision and hostility, just as the people of Noah's day rejected his message of righteousness, and the people in Sodom thought that righteous Lot must have been joking. So sinners today will not respond favorably to a message about sin, righteousness, and impending judgment. 
If you expect that everyone in this hostile world will welcome your message, you'll be in for a rude awakening. Wow. This morning, I want to apply this passage of Scripture in four ways. So if you're taking note, and I hope you are, please jot these four things down. Or you can grab your phone, snap a photo. Number one, how do we apply this to us as a church today in 2019? Well, first of all, we need to, number one, expect opposition. Can we get an amen for that? Uh, expect it, guys. Jesus has told us in advance so that we will not be caught off guard. This same writer, John, would tell us in 1 John 3.13 in his epistle, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The world hates you. Now, I said earlier, varying degrees of persecution. I looked like I had a knob, like I was turning a dial. There are different levels of persecution, and we should not be surprised at the opposition we're facing globally. Uh, but you and I are at a certain level. Can I just walk you through these really quick? Uh, this is not like gospel, but this is just something I came up with a while ago that I think helps us understand where we're at. Persecution levels. Uh, at the top or the lightest one, the lightest level, is what I call distancing or discrimination. So the idea here is that your friends, your family members, other people in your life, your coworkers, ignore you. They distance themselves from you or discriminate against you because you're a Christian. You might go in to sit down at the lunchroom and they go, oh, here comes the holy roller and they kind of avoid you. Maybe your uh, college like, um, students don't want to study with you. They don't want to be in a study group or they kind of roll their eyes uh, and they just distance themselves. Maybe you don't get invited next year to the Thanksgiving lunch or dinner because you're a Christian. Distancing discrimination. Secondly, private ridicule. The idea here is that Others begin to argue with you one-on-one, -on -one, maybe on Facebook, maybe uh, through Messenger, maybe one-on-one -on -one at, a, at a, a night, an event. Um, they find a problem with your faith. They say, hey, can I take you to lunch? Because I'm kind of tired of like, hearing about this Christ and the, and the church. Like I'm done with it. And so they begin to privately ridicule you one-on-one. -on -one. Well, that leads, thirdly, to open ridicule, which is where it's not really one-on-one -on -one anymore. Now they're talking about you. And, and they're gossiping about you. They're slandering you. Um, they're telling people how awful you are, and they're trying to find hypocrisy in you to exploit. That leads to number four, personal restriction, the next level, which is where, hey, I don't know if you know this, but we don't pray here. You're not allowed to pray here. Uh, in fact, you, you can't bring your Bible to school. That's not allowed. And, and so they begin to personally restrict you. You can't witness on the clock. Uh, you'll be let go if you do that again. That leads to legal restriction where it begins to say, oh, you know what, you're forbidden to do that or we're going to seek legal action. We're going to uh, arrest you. Uh, we're going to turn off your microphone. You're no longer free to do that without legal um, action taking place. Sadly, the sixth and seventh are happening in the world today as, as crazy and as hard as it is to believe. But these next two go to the extent that where someone would say, you stop witnessing and stop mentioning the name of Jesus or you'll be punished severely. We'll flog you, we'll beat you, we'll torture you, or we'll even kill you. Okay? America right now, Western culture, we're currently at level four, I believe four. Some level fives are happening in certain states, certain countries. Certain laws are getting there. But what's going to happen when our kids are in our position? What's that going to look like for our children? In some countries today, they're full-blown level seven. So if you're, uh, in some countries, you're, uh, you're Muslim, you receive Christ, your family will kill you. you. Your mother and father have no problem putting you to death if you preach Jesus. So, so where are we at today? Are we willing to stand firm and expect that these things could happen to us? Be ready. Secondly, if you're taking note, 
apply it this way, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. Jesus says the helper will testify of him and will bear witness. And listen, we don't have the power within ourselves to stand up and be bold, but we have the power of the Holy Spirit who will give us the right words to say, even in the midst of hostility and hatred that the world gives us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be witnesses, as Jesus says in Acts 1.8. We can be as witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And even if you and I were to be put to death, we can have peace that the Holy Spirit will speak through us and use our lives and lips to advance the gospel. So rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to have all, I need to have the four spiritual laws and the Romans wrote, I gotta have it all figured out. Well, you should be growing in that, but sometimes we just need to rely on the Spirit to give us the words uh, to ask and to say. Thirdly, I want to just really leave us with this important idea. It may, this message may make you want to do the opposite of this, but I actually want us to lean into lost people and not away from them. Does that make sense? Nod your head if you agree what I'm saying. You understand what I'm saying. Lean into lost people, not away from them. This message makes you want to go, let's just avoid all, all non-believers. We're going to set up our own little compound, and it's going to be great, and everyone's a Christian, and we're just going to stay away from the world that hates us. That's not the idea here. Uh, the idea is that, listen, God's kingdom is not a physical boundary in opposition to another kingdom. Uh, you see, the reality is that God's kingdom is found within human hearts. And we become citizens of his heavenly kingdom by faith, by spiritual new birth, not by being born within a physical border. And so we are reborn spiritually, and God's intended purpose is not like, all right, let's get all of the Christians away and let's start a new country, America, this will be good. That's not the idea. We live within wherever we live, whatever country, with the, God, the kingdom of God within us. And so God's intended purpose is not to have us abstain from this world completely and set up our own compound, right? But for us to be countercultural within the kingdoms that we live within, for the kingdom of God to be working from the inside out. So to be influential in this community, we need to be present, aware, and engaged. We need to be around among lost people who have never heard of God's kingdom. We need to point them to Jesus. I mean, think about Jesus. Was there ever a man as set apart and holy and influential as Christ? The answer is no. Was there ever a man who was known and caricatured as a friend of sinners more than Jesus? See, Jesus was among the people and yet was set apart. And so I want to encourage us uh, to be around people as hard as it is. Don't unfriend them because they have a different political view. Don't unfriend them because uh, they have a different background. Because I'm sick of the liberal stuff they're doing, or I'm sick of the, I'm sick of the stuff that they're posting uh, that's atheistic. No, we should make friends with those people and be salt and light. Uh, the idea is that we're a city on a hill that's attractive to a weary pilgrim who's in a dark land, who's thirsty, and we have something to offer them that's greater than the world. So let's lean into lost people and not shrink back from them. Amen? Number four, church, we need to check our heart against a love for this world. Check our heart. One of the Apostle Paul's closest companions was a man named Demas. Colossians 4 Demas was one of the guys that greeted the Colossian Christians, so he was known to them. Philemon 1, 24. Demas is grouped among Paul's fellow laborers, but in the last mention of him, 2 Timothy 4, 10, Paul says this on the screen. He says, Demas, who loved this present world, has deserted me and gone. 
See, sadly, Demas loved this present world. That doesn't mean that he was an activist activist against climate change uh, because he was an earth-loving conservationist. He didn't love the earth. What does that mean? It means that he loved the atheism, the hedonism, the pleasures, the mindset, the materialism and greed and ambition that are wrapped up in this world. He loved that. He agaped this world. And so he's left the ministry. You know what the name Demas means? The name Demas is the word popular. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Popular. You know what J. Vernon McGee said? He said, I believe a Christian's popularity can be an indication of how he's representing Christ to the world. I do not believe a Christian can be popular in the world. No Christian has any right to be more popular than Jesus was. Beware of a compromising position in order to be popular. The world will not love a real child of God. The world will love you if you're of the world. You don't have to act oddly or be super pious. Beware of the Christian who's popular with the world. That's not just the message for our high schoolers today. That's a message for all of us. We're all to lean into the Lord and check our heart against a love for the world. John says in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. For all that's in the world, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. And he says in verse 17, the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Church, where are our affections, our dreams, and our hopes rooted? Is it in this world under the sun? Or is it in a world to come? Don't be a Demas. Check your heart against the love of this world. Now, as we close, I want to invite our worship team forward. We're going to close in a very special song. And I want you to close your Bibles, get settled for a moment. Uh, I have a pastor's challenge for us every week. And my pastor's challenge for us this morning is this. It's right out of Hebrews 11, 20, uh, 26. And that is to consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Hebrews 11 tells us that Moses was willing to be mistreated with the people of God because he was willing to consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking forward to the reward. Listen, church, consider Jesus who was offered by Satan in the wilderness all the kingdoms of this world And yet, in that moment, Jesus refused to worship Satan. He refused to choose the world. He looked ahead to the reward. Moses did the same thing. And in Mark chapter 8, Jesus asked this, What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world, yet he loses his soul? This morning, you may be here, you don't know Jesus, and you think it'd be great to gain the whole world. Yet Jesus says, if that happens, what if that happens and you were to lose your very soul? What can you give in exchange for your soul? You see, I'd rather submit my life to the Lordship of Christ, repent of my sin, trust Him, and trust my eternity to Him and lose this world, but know that I'll never lose my soul. Even if this world were to destroy the body, I know that the soul will last for eternity. We're going to close with a hymn, a song. I think it's a very special, very appropriate song. We, uh, Pastor Micah and I often will just see how the Lord kind of puts the worship songs together. We don't in any tricky way, try to make the songs match. But James came to me this week and said, man, here's a song we're going to close with. And I thought, and we're going to close with it next Sunday as well. And I thought, man, how awesome is that we're going to close with this? We're going to do a song that many have called a hymn that you can sing while dying. A hymn you can sing while dying. Many people on their way to martyrdom would whisper to the person going to their death, sing the 46th. <laughs> 
Sing the 46. What's the 46? It's the 46th Psalm that Martin Luther uh, put uh, down as a hymn. Martin Luther wrote this hymn called A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, based on Psalm 46. Consider these words. He says, let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. We're going to stand now and we're going to sing the 46 together. So stand with me, church. Expect opposition. Check your heart this morning against an agape for this world. Be willing to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to be salt and light among a dark, dying, and depraved world that desperately needs to know Jesus. Amen? Let's sing together. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.